You're listening to the Global Ooj Podcast, where every week we learn about the world through the eyes of entrepreneurship. With your host, Ujwal Velagapudi. Running a business or even a startup or even a demanding job can take a toll on all of us, especially our happiness. I read a lot of books, talk to people with great advice and try to keep improving, but it's still pretty tough. And then there are always the new hurdles that come across us. So how do we future-proof our happiness so that we're always happy? Well, Penny Locasso of Melbourne, Australia had left her professional career as an executive and is helping people achieve just that as a TEDx and keynote speaker on her podcast, her recently published book, Hacking Happiness, and her business called HackingHappy.co. Penny has been voted one of the most influential female entrepreneurs in Australia. She's on a mission to teach 10 million humans before the year 2025 how to intentionally adapt in order to future-proof happiness. Keep listening because she dropped some amazing wisdom and she's helped her corporate clients like Google, Microsoft, Lululemon, Coca-Cola, as well as business leaders around the world on how to hack happiness. Penny, if you can just start us off with sharing a little bit about what hacking happiness actually means. Mm. Well, it's interesting because I think I think of happiness. I mean, I think the first and foremost thing is to define happiness because I think that our definition is perhaps a little bit flawed. And so I don't look at happiness as skipping down the streets and painting rainbows every day. That is not real life. Um, uh, I look at happiness as um, as being able to ride the wave of every emotion that life throws at you because, I mean, gosh, look at the current environment. We know bad stuff's going to happen that's outside of our control. But knowing that you have the skills, the resources and support to come out the other side just a little better than what you were before. So that's how I define happiness. I actually believe, and this and the research shows, that happier people are people that allow themselves to surrender to every feeling and emotion and experience that. So that's how I define happiness. And then if we put hacking at the front of that, (laughs) yeah, if I put hacking at the front of that, so my passion is, okay, if, if that is what my definition of happiness is based on my 45 years of living, hacking is about how do I crack the code of injecting more joy and more happiness into each day. Um, and so, because like I say, the reality is life is going to be a roller coaster, but I believe that happiness is not an end goal. Um, it's not something that you will have when you tick a series of boxes. Happiness is a state of being. It's a way of showing up in the everyday and the practices and rituals that you engage in in the everyday from both a mindset and a behavior perspective will determine how often you experience happiness, even when things are so complex and uncertain. It does, it does, yeah. But it's still very complex. I I mean, would you say that many of us spend our entire lives trying to essentially be in that pursuit? Like you have many, like you may have found it at one stage of your life, but you could be thrown out of balance, out of sync, and then you know you're in pursuit of it all over again and trying to find that balance and stability once again, right? Yeah, I think, I think the fundamental, I think, like the question you, to ask yourself, you know, is 
what makes me happy? Like create a list of all the times that you can remember experiencing happiness or joy. And what's really interesting is I get people to do this in workshops and often it's not the things that we believe will make us happy, you know, like success or, you know, um, material things or when I have the big house with the white picket fence and a couple of European cars in the driveway, I'm then going to be happy. And I think that's the illusion, yeah? That's why so many of us are constantly striving um, for this state of happiness because we're looking for it externally. Whereas I honestly believe that we have everything internally that we need to be able to experience the joy in life. The problem is that we're looking for happiness in the wrong places. And we're perhaps looking at, the, at what happiness is. Um, at, at, we're perhaps looking at happiness, um, as I say, as a goal rather than a state of being. And so that's kind of where I think the opportunity lies. So then, Penny, how did you come across this? And how did you, I guess, come to this realization or this journey that you're on currently? And so can you take us through kind of what was that event or a combination of events that ultimately led you to start this journey and really empower and share this with others? Mm. I, um, I had everything I could have wanted at the age of 39. So I had spent um, my adult years um, basically striving for success because I had been sold a dream that when I had, you know, this successful corporate career and all of these material things, that that would make me happy. So I spent 20 or 16 years um, as an exec in a, in a global giant ticking all the boxes and climbing the corporate ladder. And I got to the age of 39 and I was sitting there with everything I was told would make me happy and I felt unfulfilled. And I was like, there's something wrong here. This is an absolute disconnect. What's going on? And so when I stepped back and actually asked myself, what is my definition of success slash happiness? Because I don't believe you can be successful unless you are happy. Um, I realized that the things that actually made me happy were human connection, positively impacting the lives of others, being present and in a moment and sharing experiences. And I also realized that the life that I had created meant that those things had been sidelined by my pursuit of success. And so I realized that the equation that I'd been sold was back to front. front. It wasn't success equals happiness. It was happiness equals success. Success is a byproduct of doing more of the things that bring you joy in the everyday. And so I did something really crazy, which I don't advocate, (laughs) but I turned my whole life upside down in pursuit of happiness in order to realign my life to creating the space for more of those things that I mentioned in every day. So I left left a 16-year career as an executive at the top of my game. I relocated my family from Perth back to Melbourne, which is the equivalent of like New York to LA, say. Um, I left an 18-year relationship and I started my own company, hackinghappy.co, all within seven months. Um, And that was six years ago. That was six years ago now. And so that's kind of where this journey into hacking happiness started. And so um, the two things that came out of that was I gave myself a crazy title because I couldn't find a company out there that could help me hack my own happiness. 
and navigate this path. And so I was like, well, I, I'm not the only one that's experiencing happiness poverty. So I'm going to create a company that helps people navigate their hacking happiness journey. Um, I'm going to set a bold mission to teach myself or sorry, to teach 10 million humans um, how to intentionally adapt in order to hack happiness. And I went out and I started. That was the beginning in many ways. <laughs> wow. And I definitely do want to get into the mission later on. But what you had just mentioned was it's not success that leads to happiness. It's happiness that will eventually allow you to be successful. So can you get a little bit more into that? Because, you know, let's just say an entrepreneur out there, uh, they've got all these goals. And actually, even myself, for example, I was writing down my goals the other day. Uh, I've got some financial goals. I've got some personal goals. You know, I've got all these that I want to achieve in the next year, three years, five years. Um, And I realized that for every single one of those goals, I do need to make some sacrifices. And looking back at my previous goals that I've accomplished and even not accomplished, I did make sacrifices to get the ones that I wanted and achieve those. And for some of the goals that I did have some uh, some shortcomings on, I didn't sacrifice as much, let's say on a few certain aspects, uh, whatever it may be. So when when we're goal setting or looking for how to quantify our success and projecting that into our future, how do we plan for things like that? And how do we do it in such a way where, like you said, we are leading a happy life and a happy journey so that ultimately we can become successful and it's, it's not making too many sacrifices so that we're unhappy and not able to achieve happiness or the successes both. I don't know that I've got an answer for that question. I mean, because the way I look at it is that everyone's journey is unique and what makes you happy is fundamentally different to what makes me happy. And I think goals are extremely healthy things to have because they allow us to make progress. They allow us to develop ourselves. They allow us to grow and lean into discomfort, which are all things that are extremely helpful in being happier. The challenge that I have is, is probably twofold. One is that um, I think people have too many goals and the pursuit of those goals often comes, so it comes at the compromise of being. And we are human beings and being is what makes us happy. So the first thing I would challenge is I don't think that we should have more than three goals. Our brains don't work with more than three priorities. So I would say less is, is more. Um, and I would make sure that those goals are not just focused on doing. Yeah, uh, because I, I honestly believe we've been sold, we've been sold a bit of a shit sandwich, and that uh, we are now wired to believe that. Um, well, I think productivity has become our disease. We are so wired to doing, yeah, that our focus on doing has compromised our state of being. I think that's why we are seeing. Uh, an epidemic globally in terms of mental health because we never stop. Yeah, we never, every waking moment is full because we're sitting there going, I've got to be doing, I've got to be doing, I've got to be successful, I've got to achieve goals, I've got to be. But again, all of the science shows it's when we are in the stillness, it's when we are in boredom that our brain does its best work. It's where your brain connects the dots it's where you go into, your brain goes into what's called default mode network. 
you go into a mode of, of problem solving that is far superior to anything you do in this constant state of doing. The challenge is now that most of us are trying to be so successful because we're watching everybody else on social media and trying to keep up um, that it means that we're filling every minute of every day and that is actually having an inverse effect on what we're trying to achieve. Whatever your goals are, I would challenge you that they are um, balanced around doing activities as well as being activities. And when I say being, things like hobbies, things that connect you fully into a moment where you've got to be fully present and engaged in something, not doing a million things at once, that's where you're going to get your best growth and that is where you will feel more fulfilled and more joyful. So would you say it's more on that journey on how you're achieving it rather than the actual end goal itself? For example, I've got like a daily checklist or, or daily or weekly goals. I call them goals or a checklist, but they're just certain activities that I do on a daily basis, which I know that if I do for the rest of my life, I'll eventually be able to hit a lot of my long-term goals. So, you know, just simple things like waking up early, reading a book, meditating, yoga, fitness, eating right, things like that, uh, that I want to eventually habituate so that ultimately it's second nature and leading that sort of lifestyle will inevitably lead me to the successes that I want. Correct. Absolutely. Because what you're doing is you're allowing, you're allowing your brain to operate at its optimum because our brains are more effective, they're better at problem solving, and that's what we really need, you know, to be able to achieve these goals. They're better at leaning into fear and the discomfort when we give the brain time to just be rather than this constant state of doing. So um, absolutely, you're absolutely right. And, I mean, those things that you mentioned, I, I mean, a lot of what I teach people, it's, no, I mean, we, we do look at sort of what happiness would look like in six to 12 months' time. But what we focus on is exactly what you just said. It's what's your happiness practice? What are the rituals and practices that you inject into every day that are going to allow you to feel good physically and mentally and operate at your optimum? So what you're putting out is quality versus quantity. Because this, this whole focus, as I say, on quantity and filling every minute of every day and always doing and just being busy, busy is bullshit. It, it is, it's, a, it's a surefire way to end up, I would say, overwhelmed, anxious and burnt out. And that's what we're seeing. So then let's say there might be a lot of folks listening that are in the startup world or in a very demanding job like you yourself six years ago. If you could even picture yourself back in that state, is there a particular situation where you could still be happy and do all the things that you wanted to do, but still be that executive or be that startup founder or being in a demanding job or environment? Like, I mean, are those two things possible simultaneously? Or would you say that for a particular person because of their requirements for happiness or the sacrifices that they need to make to be happy that they may not be able to achieve certain work aspirations or certain other aspirations. Would you say that's true? Or do you think that the two can really go hand in hand and you can still lead a successful, let's say business life or 
an entrepreneurial life? I always say, I don't believe you can have everything. And I think that's the problem. We've been sold this idea that we can have everything. And I think social media has just amplified that to the next level. We're, because we're, we're constantly watching everybody else's showreel while we're living in our own behind the scenes. And so um, can you, I don't believe you can have it all. I think that's, that's a bullshit um, that we have been sold. Um, I think, you know, you, I, can't t- I don't tell people what's right for them, yeah? Only you can know what's right for you. And if you're feeling, like if you're in pursuit of this, like this dream life and, and you have all of these goals and you are constantly feeling energised, well-rested, fully connected to yourself and to others and living your best life and in alignment with the things that truly matter to you and you can get everything done that you want to do, I'll come and work for you. I'd love to learn how you do it, okay? That's what I would say. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying I haven't seen it done yet. I'm saying change comes with choice and change comes with compromise. And as someone who's worked in change for over 25 years, often you have to let go of something to create the space for something new. What I observe is that people don't know how to let go they don't know how to create space and they're constantly trying to pour more water into a full bucket. And all it does is lead, as I say, to burnout and overwhelm. And so the challenge I would ask is when you're adding more onto the list of goals, what are you taking away? What are you taking away every time? Because you have to. You can't keep adding. You don't have more hours in the day. You don't have... You don't have more capacity in your brain, you know, like you can't, it's, it's, yeah. So Penny, then to make those sacrifices or to remove one of those items from uh, my list, or let's say it's someone running a business and saying, hey, you've, you've got to let go of this division. It's costing you, you know, 50% of your time and only a small fraction of your revenue. It's unnecessary. I mean, some of those things in multiple aspects of our life can happen but that's pretty scary to do right like to say you know what i'm i'm not going to do this or i'm going to completely remove this and kind of focus in and narrow down Uh, so how would you walk somebody through that process because it can be pretty scary it can cause some anxiety to even consider removing some of those things and so even if it is to better ourselves but so how would you recommend somebody to go through that and kind of walk through those initial steps to overcome that fear? Yeah. So one of the things that I talk about constantly is the fact that happiness is found, I believe, at the intersection of what you've longed for but what you've avoided, right? And I think this is interesting and I see it every conversation I have with people. When I ask them what they've longed for but avoided, they sit there and go, oh, like there's a pain because everyone's got um, something that sits with that. What's interesting is the fact that you've longed for something means that it really matters to you because you've sat with it for some time, okay? And, And my observation is generally it's between two or three years before people will act on it if they ever do. And the avoidance piece is what you're talking about. 
Often the reason we avoid it is because it's damn hard. It makes us feel really uncomfortable and fear is attached. That's why we avoid it. Because if it was easy, we would have just done it. And often it means a destabilization, yeah? It means that we are going to uproot some element of our life or our career or we're going to piss some people off. That is the reality. And so I love that people talk about this is where that space of get comfortable with discomfort sits and everyone talks about it but I just think it's so funny that everyone goes oh yeah go and get comfortable with discomfort because it's like yeah great what does that actually mean you know like how would I do that and so two things that I teach people one of the things we teach people is how to say no you would be astounded at how many professionals at executive level that we teach to say no because the more you say no to others the more you say yes to yourself and the things that truly matter to you the second thing that we teach people to help them lean into this fear and this idea of getting comfortable with discomfort, which allows you to build the courage and confidence to lean into bigger risks and bigger challenges over time, is a really simple practice called micro-bravery. And it goes back to what we said at the start, yeah? It's what can you bring into the everyday that's going to build those, those muscles, those skills that you need that will enable you to navigate the difficult stuff in a way that's meaningful for you. So micro-bravery is doing something small every day that makes you feel uncomfortable. And it's relative to you, not to anyone else, because what makes you feel uncomfortable is different to me. So, for example, for me last week, um, I uh, one of the things I did was I signed up for a free neuroscience course online with Harvard. And um, that makes me feel uncomfortable, even though I love reading research. Um, I use a lot of it to, I've just used a lot of it to write my first book and launch that. Um, but I'm not a scientist. Okay, so that's my micro bravery. Yours might be reaching out to a random stranger that you've never met, like you did with me on LinkedIn, <laughs> and asking them whether they'll come on your podcast. And so I would challenge people that want to lean into that fear and lean into that discomfort to start this practice of micro-bravery, you will be astounded at how, if you do this every day, over a year, it can fundamentally change the way you look at fear. Fear actually becomes a green light to lean into rather than um, back away from because you realise the more you lean into it, the more opportunity and possibility you unlock. I love that, yeah. I've got a lot of fears and over the years I've been trying to tackle some of those, but breaking that down kind of like the way I did my daily routine is, is definitely helpful. I really like that. Uh, the micro bravery as well. So in a business setting, you've got so many corporate clients and you've done keynotes all over the world, TEDx's. What are some of those things that in a business setting or at a company you've seen some of your clients or at the corporate level, these executives doing that just really boggle your mind that you could share with, with the audience? Like, for example, hey, this is the way not to go about things and this is what not to do in terms of what they're doing or how they're living their lives or things that you've been able to help folks get out of and remove those negative aspects of their lives? Mm. I think the two um, that have been most prevalent in the past 12 months, the first one um, is what I call the busy epidemic. 
Yeah, again, and it links back to productivity being disease. Pe- people wear busy as a badge of honour. It's like if I'm busy, I'm important. It validates who I am. Um, but I fundamentally believe busy equals bullshit because the word busy actually contains no useful information. Yeah, and often it's code for something else. More often than not, and I've discovered this from working with thousands in corporations, when they say they're busy, they're either anxious, they're distracted, they're overwhelmed, um, they are lonely, they're using it as a means to validate their importance, or um, it links to FOMO. They're saying yes to everything because they have a fear of missing out. And so... I actually say one of the biggest opportunities we have in the corporate space and what I teach people, we run a whole program on this, is actually take on the busy equals bullshit challenge. So for one week, remove the word busy from your vocabulary. And I did this two years ago and I swapped it out for positively engaged. And so now when people ask me how I, how I am, most people's default response will be I'm busy. That's the corporate <laughs> default. And I say I'm positively engaged. And what that has done is, one, it has significantly reduced the amount of noise in my head because busy perpetuates busy and no one wins a race on a hamster wheel, right? And that's what busy is. Two, it changes the conversations you have because when you say busy, it closes a conversation, doesn't open it. But when I say I'm positively engaged, people are like, so many people don't like what they do. People are like, what the hell are you doing? Like, why is it you get to enjoy your work? And that opens up a whole conversation. And the other thing it does, it allows me to be accountable to doing what I'm doing in alignment with what matters to me. Because if I say I'm positively engaged and I'm not, then I get to call bullshit on myself and say, well, why the hell am I doing what I'm doing? So that's the first thing. I would say get rid of busy because it is an epidemic in the professional world and I guarantee it's not serving you. Yeah. The other thing that astounds me is that curiosity is the foundation for innovation and for, you know, learning new things and for unlocking joy and for developing ourselves. And as humans, we are born innately curious, you know, look at a child and how they look at the world. But unfortunately, so many professionals say to me, I'm too busy to be curious. And then they wonder how they can't innovate the same way as, say, an Atlassian. It's because they don't prioritise curiosity. They see it as a luxury. They tell me it's something they do in their spare time of which they have none. And so I actually think prioritising curiosity and giving people the space to explore their curiosity is one of the most powerful things a corporation can do. And, again, there is research that I reference in the book that I wrote that speaks to the fact that companies should actually incentivize their staff to have hobbies because it cultivates curiosity at a different level. It allows people to practice being present and in a moment and it equally allows the brain to recover in a way that makes people more productive when they are at work and helps them to perform higher. Go figure. Simple stuff. Yeah, it was actually fun. It's actually funny because I was going to name the podcast Curious Uge. Uh, instead of the Global Luge podcast, because I'm naturally pretty curious and I just simply wanted to learn about all sorts of people all over the world. I mean, you and I are halfway around the world speaking together right now. And I think it's just absolutely amazing, especially during this time right now. 
that's why I love what I do. Yeah. So Penny, can you go through a little bit about your book, Hacking Happiness? I know you've just recently launched it. So can you share a little bit about that journey and actually writing the book and how you've been able to share your practices with so many people? Yeah. Um, as you said, I've done, I've traveled a lot um, around the world and had the opportunity to speak to some amazing audiences, especially in America, like, um, you know, the hacking happiness message seems to really resonate there. So um, I kept getting asked every time I spoke, where's the book? How can I buy the book? And I was like, there is no book. And like you talk about goals, it's always been a dream. I'd longed and avoided. Yeah, this was a long, it was a great example. I'd longed for years to write a book, but I'd avoided it because I knew that it was going to be really hard work and it was going to take a lot of time and it was going to mean that I'd have to switch off I have to stop my other work. So I was going to have to have a period of time where I probably, you know, changed my income. And then late last year, I was approached by two publishers and they asked me to write a book and they both were willing to pay me advances, which I keep getting told by book editors is very rare this day, these days unless you're a Brené Brown. And I was like, well, if someone's going to pay me to write a book, then maybe this is the time to do it. So November last year, I kind of went into monk mode and I – had to write, they told me they wanted the book by March this year. So it was like a three-month process because it was the end of November to get this book finished. And I was like, far out, might as well just get it done. So I went to monk mode for three months, wrote the book. And the day I finished the book, two days later here in Melbourne, we went into lockdown. And I was like, what? Because COVID had hit. I was like, I've just been in lockdown for three months. <laughs> and then, so um, the book was really, the reason I wanted to write the book was because I wanted to, I don't tell people what to do, as I was saying to you before, I wanted to create a roadmap and a framework that would enable people to identify their own unique hacking happiness journey and enable them to give themselves permission to experiment with practices that would enable them to inject more joy into every day. And so the book that I wrote is not a book that you would read cover to cover in, say, a week. It is a book that you would read a small section. There is a load of experiments. You would go away. You would reflect. You would apply what you've learned, and then you would come back and move on. So it's really the book is a journey. That's kind of it's a navigation system. And so, yeah, so that's what I wrote. And then lo and behold, COVID really hit, and um, I went through the process of going, how the hell am I going to launch a book in a pandemic? Because over here in Australia, all of the airports are pretty much closed and our airport sales were huge for books previously. You know, there's no retailers open here in Melbourne. We're still in lockdown and it's what, um, September. So, um, yeah, I launched the book last week with a crazy idea, which was um, the world's first virtual hacking happiness retreat, which we had over 500 people sign up to. And I collaborated with Lululemon Athletica and we basically ran a series of micro retreats which was wellbeing gurus from Australia and New Zealand talking about how they practice their happiness. So what it did was rather than a boring book launch, it was a way for people to connect with what hacking happiness was and to start to experiment um, with the concepts in the book. So, yeah, that's a little bit about the journey and it's been a crazy one, but it's been an extremely joyful one. Um, the response has been phenomenal. That's amazing, Benny. I'm I'm curious, do you have anything pertaining to or any feedback from you directly, even pertaining to relationships in the workplace? 
So this can be, let's say, a manager that's driving you nuts, a coworker that you can't get along with, or let's say you as the owner, you as a founder. For example, I've had this where I've owned a few businesses and there are employees that, you know, it's just, it's tough. It's in one way or another, in a multitude of ways, it's just tough. Uh, we've got to let them go. Or maybe there, there's a lot of partners, uh, partner disputes as well for co-founders. Uh, so do you have any advice for that and how that is translating to your happiness? Um, I mean, that is translating to your happiness is almost a direct way because they're consuming a lot of your mind. Uh, they're consuming a lot of your interaction within the 24 hours that we do have. And so if it's negative, then that's ultimately impacting us in a pretty significant way. Look, we don't specifically, um, we talk a lot about human connection, which is relationships. So we don't label it relationships. We talk a lot about the power of human connection and how you cultivate positive human connection. Um, We talk a lot about having curious conversations because, again, that's something that we are not good at. We're very good at having conversations where we put our opinions out on the table Um, And often when we think we're listening, we're actually sitting there thinking about what we're going to say next. So we talk a lot about curious conversations, which I think in the realm of relationships is extremely important. And it's about going into conversations intentionally, trying to understand where the other person is coming from in relation to whatever the challenge is that you're dealing with. Um, So it's, you know, it's directly linked to empathy, which is a key skill for the moment. It's directly linked to trying to understand the other human being and putting one of the most powerful things I think we can do to be happier is challenging ourselves to look at the world through a different lens. And the practice of curious conversations enables us to do that because what we often do is we, we I think, we look at a difficult um, relationship and we look at all the reasons why the other person is contributing to that problem. We're not very good at understanding where they're coming from because we haven't had that difficult conversation. We're very good at understanding why it frustrates us. And so curious conversations um, and the way that we look at that in the book and helping people to have those is extremely powerful, I think, in the context of relationships. The other thing that we go deep on is how to say no. And I think we no one loves a no. Um, you know, it makes people get, oh, but I think, again, in terms of having good relationships, the power to say no allows us to set boundaries and boundaries are really important in relationships. But again, often we don't get to the point of boundaries until it's too late. And so actually looking at um, that practice of saying no as a means to setting boundaries at the beginning of a relationship, I think is extremely powerful. The other thing that I've done recently, I spend a lot of time journaling um, because I think there's a lot to be said for understanding yourself and also your thoughts. And one of the things I did with my partner that was really helpful for us the other week, and I don't even know where it came from, this is the power of journaling, was we both wrote down a list and I said to him, what I want us to do is I want us to write down what makes you feel valued and what makes you feel loved. So just a simple matrix on a page, tell me what makes you feel valued and tell, you, tell me what makes you feel loved. And then we sat down together with our list of valued and loved. 
And we've been together, oh, like five and a half years. We've never done that. And I, like, we're, as I say, we're living together in lockdown. It was, like, it, it, I'm not saying things changed dramatically overnight, but it was just such a wake-up call because it was such a simple exercise in understanding one another. But it meant, like, he, one of the things he said to me is, you're very good at highlighting the things I don't do well. It would be nice occasionally if you told me the things that I do do well. And I was like, oh, my God, that's so simple. And I didn't even know that I did it. Do you know what I mean? Because you get so comfortable in a relationship. And so now, like, when he does the dishes at night, I say, hey, thanks. I really appreciate that you did the dishes. And it's just, it just makes such a difference. So I'd recommend that. I'm still single right now, but I really do like that. I think something like you just said, even though you're in a relationship, it could be your partner, home, or even a business partner. That Because I'm relating what you just said to business partners or colleagues or bosses where, hey, we've never actually truly outside of like maybe an annual performance review, truly sat down and evaluated each other and looked at our synergies. I mean, what can we do together? How can we help one another and improve? And I think that's extremely crucial as we understand the people that we work with and spend really a majority of our lives with in that workspace. So yeah, I really like that. You've just given me an idea. So thanks for that. (laughs) So Penny, is there something that you can share with the audience where it's maybe one thing that could actively, that they could actively do right now once they stop listening to uh, this episode and something that they can just literally pick up and do immediately, either pen to paper or mentally or with their partner, something that's so small yet it's still going in the right direction. And it's one of the first steps in their journey to hacking happiness. Oh gosh. Um, this time <laughs> I, I think for me, what has been the most powerful thing that I have brought into my practice in the last six months during what I now term COVID life is the very simple practice of gifting myself the start of the day. And so many people have said to me when I ask them, what would be most helpful to you right now? So many people say to me, I just need space. Like I need space on my own because a lot of people are living in a bubble, you know, with other people and there's no minute to themselves. Um, Or they're working every minute of every day and they're on Zoom calls nonstop because most people are working from home now. And so I think the most beautiful opportunity we have is when we gift ourselves the start of the day, even if, like I, I'm selfish and, I'm, and my selfishness makes me so happy because I gift myself every work day, five days a week, I gift myself the first hour of the day, which is a huge indulgence. I cannot tell you how that has changed my life. But I'd say, what if you could only give, what if you only gave yourself 10 minutes at the beginning of the day? And if you say, oh, I don't have the time for that, then I'd say, if your happiness matters, set your alarm for 10 minutes earlier because that's all it takes. Gift yourself the start of the day because if, and and the thing is that time that you gift yourself at the start of the day, that is not time to check your phone. There is, it's not a time for technology. That is a time because as soon as you step into this, you are in reactionary mode. You are reacting. You are not sitting there intentionally, um, intentionally considering how you want your day to play out. And that is what this time is for. This is about saying, 
if this day was going to be the best day that it could be, what can I do in the next 10 minutes to give that the best possible chance of happening? And so it might be as simple as getting pen and paper and writing down what the perfect day would look like, what your intention for the day is, what's one thing you're going to let go of today, what's a couple of things that you're really grateful for right now. Like, so I would say gift yourself the start of the day because, again, the research shows that the people who do that have a much higher frequency of days that are in alignment to how they want them to play out. And there's a brilliant little hack from an American. There's a guy called BJ Fogg who is a behavioural scientist out of Stanford and um, he's written a book called Tiny Habits and, again, it's kind of like happiness practices. Um, he's done research, and this is such a small hack, he's done research that shows that if you wake up in the morning and before your feet even hit the ground out of the bed, tell yourself today is going to be a great day. You are programming your mindset and your neural pathways to believe that that is the case, even if you don't feel it. Saying to yourself, today is going to be a great day, the research shows again that you are more likely to have a great day. So they're the two things I would highly recommend. And I do them. I don't, do, I don't recommend anything I don't do. And they have been a game changer for me in terms of keeping my sanity in COVID life. I want to add that. Yeah, definitely starting tomorrow or even before bed. Well, send me an email and let me know if it works. I will. <laughs> I will. I like that because it's forcing yourself in that the action is leading the feeling and not the feeling leading the action. Oh, I love that. At the very beginning, Penny, you were talking about your mission and it's to share this journey, how to hack happiness essentially with 10 million people before the year 2025. So can you share a bit about why you had created that mission and where you're at with the mission right now? Yeah, so um, the reason I created that mission is because I have observed firsthand over the last six years how even pre-COVID we were experiencing what I term happiness poverty, which is an insufficient amount of joy in our lives. And I think now it's even worse, yeah. And it's part of the reason why we have, an anxiety epidemic globally, again, which has just had the dial turned up on it. So that's why I created this crazy mission because people kept asking me how I'd done what I'd done. And I, and I didn't want to, I think the other thing is I didn't want people to think that I had reached this pinnacle um, because, like I kept saying, happiness is a practice. And so I wanted people to be able to connect with me and understand that I am still a work in progress. I, t- I basically label myself the imperfect experimenter because that's what hacking happiness is yeah i am imperfect in the way that i do things because i'm a human being but i embrace that imperfection because that's where the magic lies and experimentation gives me the ability to try new things to look at the world through a different lens on a daily basis and i thought to myself this is what this is what I want to teach other people. I think this is where the secret to unlocking happiness lies. Um, and that's kind, of, that's kind of why I created this crazy mission. And it seemed to connect with people because it's rare that I meet someone who doesn't want more happiness in their life. If anything, people are like God, like I could use a hell of a lot more. 
Um, where am I at on the mission? It's hard to tell. So we had a tracker um, on the website just before we did the rebrand three months ago. And we were tracking based on people that had sent me feedback of impact and also the amount of people we'd been able to touch. But it's so hard to tell. Um, you know, for me, it was really about putting the stake in the ground to get people connected around the idea so that I could reach as many people as possible. And the reality is, if I don't get to 10 million, I don't care. Yeah. If I can reach a million, that is huge because what I have observed is that when you find joy in your own life and you step into this space of imperfect experimentation in the service of hacking your happiness, it is infectious. And so the, the ripple effect of that on the lives of the people around you means that I won't ever know directly, but I'll guarantee you the ripple effect of impacting a million people will probably be well beyond 10 million. And so, yeah, it was really just about putting a stake in the ground. I really like that. And it really is infectious. I actually had a call the other day. Uh, this gentleman finished the call saying that he was extremely happy. He loved his life. He loved his wife, loved his uh, businesses, his dog. And we literally ended the call 10 seconds later. Uh, and that just left a mark on me after we just had an hour-long heated discussion on uh, how to acquire businesses, uh, the nitty-gritty of negotiation, due diligence, etc. And it just left me thinking, wow, that is something to aspire to be. I mean, when you can just genuinely say to a stranger that you've just met virtually uh, that you're happy with everything about your life, I mean... Yeah, I definitely agree. That's extremely contagious and infectious. And I love it. But it's it, it's a choice, yeah. And I think we don't realize that we are wired to look, like as human beings, we're wired to look at the negative, yeah, because we're wired to assess every situation for risk. Um, that's why we have an amygdala, you know. It's why fight or flight or freeze response is, is it's pre-programmed into us. So understanding that we have a bias towards the negative is really important because it means then that we have a choice in terms of how we show up every day. And you can choose to look at the scarcity. You can choose to look at the things that you don't have or what's been taken away by COVID. Or you can sit there and choose to look at the abundance. And you can look at all the things that you actually do have. And that's exactly what that gentleman has done. He's focused on what he does have, not what he doesn't. Penny, you've got a podcast called Human First, your recently launched book, Hacking Happiness. You've done numerous TEDx speeches, keynotes, and corporate events all over the world. What are the various platforms or avenues that you use to be able to send your message and the best way for audience members to be able to reach out to you? Yeah, I think the best platform is the website, hackinghappy.co. So um, we've launched in the last couple of months a number of, so we're now doing online programs. So all of the stuff we used to do in corporations, we're now doing for individuals. Um, so hackinghappy.co is where you'll find everything. Um, we're just about to release a new podcast, which is the Hacking Happy podcast, um, which has got an amazing group of um, people that we're interviewing. And um, yeah, everything is in hackinghappy.co. The other space that I'm really active in is LinkedIn. So you can find me, Penny Lacasso, on LinkedIn. Thank you so much, Penny, again. I absolutely love speaking with you and our conversation. 
And like I was saying about the gentleman uh, before, even just speaking with you, I, I can feel that happiness. It exudes. And I know we're halfway around the world right now, but it truly does exude and you can feel it. And so I, I love that genuine happiness from our conversation. And thank you so much again. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm really grateful. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the show this week. Please do leave a comment on your thoughts about today's episode and make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest on the Global Ouge. Or if you already have, please share with a friend that you think might enjoy.